Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I want to read a passage of scripture that I will not come back to until until toward the end of my comments. It is in many ways a Johannine parallel to what you find in the 8th chapter of Mark. So keep that in mind as you think about it. Except that uh, the passage in Mark 8 would come probably some six months before the death of Christ, the passion of Christ. And this passage would come in the week immediately before his crucifixion. It's chapter 12 of the Gospel of John and reading from verse 20. The passage comes immediately after Jesus' triumphal entry in the record that John gives to us. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the beauty of the place where we find ourselves and for the quietness and the freshness of the morning and for the opportunity that we've had to expose ourselves to your word the written word. Now we would like to expose ourselves in a special way to the one who is the living word. We remember again your promise to us that if two of us meet in your name to talk about you before we finish, you will join the group. And so we would like that in this session together we may have a sense 
of the nearness of Jesus Christ, the living Lord, and of the fact that he is speaking to us. Give us ears to hear, either through or in spite of human instruments around us. But give us ears to hear, and give us hearts to respond affirmatively to what he has to say to us. And we will give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We said we were working basically from three passages of Scripture. The reference for everything, I think, would be Philippians 2, 5 to 11, which is the passage where Paul says to some Christians whom he loves very dearly, uh, he's writing to them in prison now. He says, I'd like for you to have in you the mind that was in Christ Jesus. And then he speaks about what that mind was. It was a mind that was not willing to value being equal with God of such significance that he was not willing to humble himself in order to save the world. So he emptied himself of his position and its perquisites, and he humbled himself and sacrificed himself in Calvary. And then because of that, God exalted him and now has given him a name which is above every name, and in his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we went back from that last night to John 3, and we said that in Nicodemus the indications are that we had the best that Jerusalem, the best that Israel had to offer. And when he came to see Jesus, he didn't understand Jesus, and Jesus said, uh, how is it that you, the teacher of Israel, you don't understand what I'm saying about? It is because you have not been touched by the Spirit of God. Unless the Spirit of God quickens you and illuminates you, you will not understand this. And so because you do not understand, you can narrow the purposes of God. You can narrow the purposes of the Father until all that you see in the work of God is just enough to take care of yourselves. And so you become nationalistic, you become preoccupied with yourselves, your election as Jews, who you are, and you shut out the very ones for whom God called you. Now, of course, that fits with Old Testament because you will remember that when God called Abraham and spoke to him the first time, he said, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, or through you all the nations of the earth will bless themselves. So that from the first call of the, of the father of the Hebrews, God had the last person in the world in mind. When God called Abraham, he had the, and he had all the other people in the world in mind at the same time. Now, you will notice that in the Gospel of John, there is a heavy emphasis upon God as Father. You get it in the second chapter when he cleanses the temple. He said, you've made my Father's house. Now in this passage, he doesn't speak so much about the Father, but he talks about the fact that God has a Son, and it's hard to have a Son unless you're a Father. So it is this parental role of God that is the background and the context for what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. That... Uh, God is a parent, God is a father, and those people out there who are not Jews, he cares as much about as a father does for any one of his children, the one that's not pleasing him just as much as the one that is pleasing him. 
Now, I never come to these things, but that I find myself responding in terms of personal experience. But I remember when three of our kids came to us and said, if you're the Christian, you ought to be, you'd, beat the, you'd boot that fourth one out. <laughs> and you'd never let him come back or set foot in this house again. They were upset with uh, our son, and he deserved uh, being upset with at that stage of the game. But, you know, I sat there and listened to three of my kids that says, shut him out, and something inside me said, how do you shut your own out? Now, I think that's the context in which God is dealing with, with Nicodemus and dealing with Israel. Israel, called to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, has shut the walls around that light and has kept it for themselves. They knew what no other people in the world knew. They had spiritual privileges that nobody else in the world had. They had enlightenment about the nature of God and about the nature of reality that nobody else in the world had, and they shut the walls in to keep it for themselves. And he says, God loves the world, not just you. God loves the world, and he loves it so much that he is willing to sacrifice his own son for the sake of that world. Now, it was hard for them to believe how, how much God loved the world. And it was impossible for them without enlightenment, illumination, to understand how far God would go to redeem the world. So he says, Nicodemus, God's purposes are infinitely bigger than you've ever dreamed. And you're going to have to have a divine opening of your eyes if you see how much God cares about the world and what, how big his purposes are. Now, uh, when you come to the disciples in the passage in Mark, you will remember that uh, they had come to the place where they knew who Jesus was. Nicodemus was raising the question. He said, we know that you're a good a teacher come from God. He was willing to acknowledge him as a teacher. They were raising, he and the Sanhedrin were raising the question, is this the Christ? Now, the Sanhedrin came to the place where they said, no, he's not the Christ. And so they rejected him and they crucified him. The 12 disciples lived with him for three years. Now, at the end of those three years, he's raising the question with them as to who they think he is. And they say, we know who you are. You are the Christ. And he says, good. Now you know that. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I will go to uh, Jerusalem. I will suffer at the hands of sinful men. Be scourged, crucified, will die. On the third day, I will rise. And Peter immediately says, oh, no, that cannot be. In fact, what you're suggesting is near blasphemy. God have mercy on you. It's interesting when one moment he's confessing that he's the Christ and the next minute he's praying for divine mercy on him. But uh, he says, that cannot be. Jesus says to him, Peter, you don't think the way my father thinks. You think the way men think. And the radical difference is the kind of thing I hope we can sort of get at. And I guess if I have any prayer for myself, it is, Lord, I'd like to know how you think. Because my tendencies are to think the way the world around me, the way men think. You will remember that uh, after this, we get three chapters, or at least two full chapters, that are a good illustration of the difference in the way Jesus thinks, and the way the Father thinks, and the way uh, the disciples think. You will remember that uh, three times in that passage, Jesus speaks to them about the cross. First time, Peter protests. The second time, Mark tells us, 
that uh, they didn't understand him. The third time that Mark says that as they journeyed, he talked to them about the cross, his sufferings, and his death, his resurrection. Mark doesn't make any comment about whether they understood it. He just tells it, records it. And, you know, I have the feeling that it was a kind of experience where when he did it that third time, and undoubtedly he did it more, Mark records the three, that when he did it that third time, you will, I suspect that Peter looks over at John and sort of shrugs his shoulders and says, there he goes again. He's got this little speech he feels obligated to make. Don't have the vaguest notion what he means by it. But it's sort of a litany with him. And if he feels better when he's made it, three cheers, let him say it. Can't feature what it means. Because they didn't understand. Now you will remember, not only did they not understand his ways of what he was going to do intellectually, they didn't understand it personally in terms of themselves. So they come to the end of a day and Jesus said, you had an interesting conversation today, didn't you? And they blush and he said, yes, you were talking about which one was going to have the top seat in the kingdom, weren't you? Now you don't understand my father's kingdom. It's not made like a pyramid like this with fewer and fewer seats at the top with greater and greater perquisites as you go up and more and more power as you go up. My father's kingdom would be the exact reverse of that. The privileged seats are this way not that way. And it will be the weak that win, not the strong. And it'll be the humble that rule, not the powerful. So he began to talk to them, but they didn't understand. You will remember John says, at least we did one good thing today. And he said, what's that? He said, we found a fellow who wasn't one of us. and He was casting out devils and we forbade him because he's not one of, you, one of the apostles. He's not one of us. So he wasn't a Methodist. So therefore, he was on the outside. Now, the irony of that you miss if you don't connect that with the story of what happened at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. When James and John and, uh, James and, John and Peter came down from the mountain with Jesus, they found the other nine in a crowd at the foot of the, of the mountain, and there was a great commotion. Uh, Jesus said, what's the trouble? And a distraught father came to him and said, I brought my son who is a demoniac, and uh, uh, your disciples were unable to help him. And Jesus says, how long do I have to put up with you, O lacking in faith generation? Bring him to me, and Jesus delivers the son. Now at the end of that conversation, his disciples come to him and say, why, can't, why couldn't we do it? Now if you've, if, if you've missed the thrust of that passage, a significant part of it, if you forget that it was not long before this that Jesus had sent his disciples out two by two all through that country healing the sick and delivering demoniacs. That's the reason the father brought his son to them in the first place because they had had that kind of power and they had lost it. And now what they once had by apostolic appointment and now have lost by spiritual dissipation, now an outsider has. And John is rebuking the outsider for doing what they'd had the power to do and they themselves had frittered away. Now you see, they said, why couldn't we do that? And he said, this kind comes forth only by prayer. Some of the manuscripts have fasting. But I think what's being said about the prayer is, you see, you haven't learned the ways of my father's kingdom yet. You think you can get power and it's yours to control 
And when I give it, you can keep it and use it the way you please. And it's at your disposition. There is no spiritual power where you don't stay at the disposition of the one that I give to you. There's a vast difference between these two things. The same way in the cleansing of the temple, Jesus referred to the passage in Jeremiah 7 where he said, you say that as long as you have the temple in your midst, you're protected. You're going to use the temple for your protection. The temple is here so God can use you, not so you can use God. Now, the natural mind wants to use God for his own advantage. The spiritual mind is the one that puts himself at the utter disposal of God for him to do what he pleases with. Now, there are two different things. And you see, Jesus says, you haven't learned the secret of spiritual power yet. Now, you will remember it was after this that James and John came to them and said, could we have the right hand and the left in your kingdom? You look at 8, 9, and eight, nine, and 10 and see that. Now, uh, oh, six or eight months ago, I noticed something in that passage I had never noticed before. The beginning of chapter 8 is the story of the healing of a blind man. And the end of chapter 10 is the story of the healing of a blind man. The first one is the case where you will remember he touched him and he saw men as trees walking and he had to touch him a second time. The latter story at the end of 10 is uh, the story of Bartimaeus on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross the last time he went through Jericho. Now, you know, I have wondered, Mark was a skillful writer and Mark was saying things not only by the stories he told, but I think he may have been saying things by the way he placed the stories that he told. Could it be that Mark has put a parenthesis at the beginning and at the end of this passage where Jesus says, you don't think the way God thinks, you think the way men think. He puts this story of a blind man that he heals at the beginning and a blind man that he heals at the end to say to anybody who picks it up and reads, Jesus didn't have any problem with physical blindness. It wasn't the blindness of Bartimaeus that was a problem to him. It was the blindness of a Peter that was a problem to him. And remember, Peter had been with him for three years of intimate communion and conversation. And I suspect physical things are not the problem for God that the spiritual are. And so he says, I think he can heal the physical with power, but I think it takes something more than that when it comes to dealing with the human heart and the human mind. So there are those passages that have to do with uh, uh, how Jesus says, I want you to come to the place where you think the way God thinks and not think the way the world thinks. Now, what was the result of their inability to think his ways? For the church, for Israel, if that bothers you, for the people of God, whatever you're going to call Israel, for the established religious group, it meant that they misunderstood him so completely that at the end of his days, they took him out and crucified him. They rejected him. Now, why did they reject him? They said he doesn't perform right. He doesn't do things the way they're supposed to do, be done. We know how God's supposed to save the world, and he doesn't do it the way he's supposed to save the world. He's not in the right form, and he doesn't perform in the right manner. And so their thinking was the reverse of what Jesus was, and so they crucified him. They rejected him and crucified him. Now, the disciples didn't reject him. The disciples sort of adhered themselves to him and stuck to him. 
but they didn't understand the end. And when they saw something happen that they said, this is impossible, it isn't right. This is counter to everything that we know is right. And when they saw that he was to be crucified, in spite of everything he had said, they didn't understand, and in their dismay, they drop out. They drop out. It's not rejection. They forsake him. They leave him. Now, I think there are two classes of two kinds of negative response. One in the established church and the other in these disciples who'd been intimately with him. Now, why? What was the essence of it? I think two things. One of them was the form in which he came. Uh, they were expecting a Messiah and they were expecting him to come as a divine king. Everybody knows how a king comes. A king comes with a crown and a throne and a scepter and royal robes and a retinue and all of the pomp and all of the pageantry that goes with power. And if you're a divine king, you come with the pageantry, the glory, and with the power that come with divinity. And so I think Satan understood that when he said, you just go floating down from the top of the temple and let them see that gravity is no problem for you and glow a little while you come down and they'll say, he's here. But he didn't come that way. He came the same way you came. And he needed his diapers changed. And they said, can't be God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Now, I think if he'd come as a theophany, they would not have had so much of a problem because the ancient Near East was loaded with stories about gods that showed up in the forms of men. But when they showed up in the form of men, it was always an appearance instead of a reality, and it was always temporary. And so you will remember there were theophanies in Scripture, there are theophanies in the mythologies of the ancient Near East, there are theophanies in the, the in the mythologies of the world where the gods take the appearance, the forms of men or women, and come. But they're always appearances, and they're always temporary. But you see, the heart of the gospel is that when he took flesh, it wasn't an appearance, it was a reality. And when he took it, it wasn't temporary. Because the indications are that when we see him, we will find the scars in his hand. And the indications are, you know, much to the dismay of the philosophers who say God, if he's eternal and ultimate and absolute, can't change. In the incarnation, the second person of the blessed trinity, that portion of Godhead changed his form permanently. Now that's shocking. But the way he came. Uh, I think we've still got a few over here, maybe of uh, some thing of a, the De Harry Denman lectures for 1984 on uh, the hymns of the Wesleys done by Ellsworth Callis, pastor of the Church of the Savior in Cleveland. Uh, if you are interested in hymns, you ought to see that and you ought to get a copy and read it. 
Ellsworth Callis dug out a verse that I had never heard from one of Wesley's hymns. And it's a, it's, it's magnificently expressive of what I want to say. And that is, uh, uh, our gracious, our God ever blessed with oxen doth rest is nursed by the creature and hangs at the breast. Now listen to that. Our God, ever blessed, with oxen doth rest, is nursed by the creature and hangs at the breast. Now you know that the scriptures teach that the second person of the Trinity is the one who sustains all things by the word of his power. He is the one who spoke all things into existence, so they came into existence through him, the creator. And here he is, a babe, nursing at the breast of his creature. That's what you call coherence, isn't it? And God is wedded to his creation in that. And so here he is, a babe. You know, I have some sympathy with uh, that innkeeper in, in, in Bethlehem. How was he to know whom he was rejecting? I suspect he had as much of the milk of human kindness in him as any of us. And he said, I'm sorry. I wish I had a place for it. You obviously need protection. A woman ready to have a child does. A cud. There's a stable out there. How do you know whom he was rejecting? God doesn't come that way. But he did. He began as a baby. He ended up as a corpse. And the church looked at him as he died. And said there's the proof. We know that he's not the Christ. That's the absolute definitive. Conclusive proof. See he dies. He dies as a man. Therefore he cannot be the Christ. He's an imposter. We were right to crucify him. He's a lie, an imposter. So I think the form in which he came was beyond their comprehension. I had an agnostic mathematician say to me one day, he said, you know, I read the gospel story and it was too good to be true. I couldn't go for that. And then he said, one day I decided it was too good not to be true. And he said, my life's been transformed. I suspect all the people who reject God, the reasons they use for rejecting them are reasoning, reasons they ought to accept him. I suspect all of our reasons for disobedience are really reasons should be re are reasons for obedience. We just think wrong. Like C.S. Lewis said, I found all my arguments for atheism were much better arguments for theism if I just reversed them, turned them backwards. I'd been reading the sentence the wrong way. And so when he came, his form through them. But not only his form, his manner. They knew how a king was supposed to come, a divine king. He was supposed to come with pomp, with power, pageantry, glory. And that's not the way he came. There are four figures in the Gospel of John that now have uh, sort of brought it into focus for me. There's a fifth one that. Uh, I haven't gotten under control yet. Uh, the fifth one is the lamb. 
They expected a lion and they got a lamb. You see, Judah, the symbol for the tribe of Judah was the lion. And the Messiah came from the tribe of Judah. So he was to be the the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the lion of the tribe of Judah was a rampant lion standing on his hind paws with his forepaws extended and his claws out. You're going to take care of the enemies. He was going to take care of the enemies of Israel. He was going to take care of the Romans. He was going to straighten everything out. And what they got was a lamb. And what good's a lamb against Rome? And what good is a lamb against rampant evil? But the four that now have enamored me that just run through are these. The first one is not explicit. It's implicit in the first chapter of John. Verses 10 and 11, it says, He, speaking of the Christ, the word of God, came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. But that first verse, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. I'm sure that that's the full counterpart to what you find in the third chapter of the book of the Revelation in the Laodicean letter, verse 20, where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Christ speaking. He stands at our heart's doors and knocks. Very tender passage, isn't it? And it's one we love. Uh we respond to with affection and appreciation. You've used it, and I've used it. How many times with people who wanted to receive Christ, and particularly with children? But at that point, we're all children, aren't we? I'm sure that's the reason that out of all the paintings I've ever seen of Christ, the one that moves me the most is the one that uh, the original's in Keble College at Oxford, but there's a copy in St. Paul's. I've never seen the original, but I've seen the copy in St. Paul's of Christ standing at the door called the light of the world. You know, it's a, he's standing, has a crown on his head, an aura about him. He has royal robes on and he has priestly robes because he's both our king and our high priest. He has in his hand a lantern. And so it's called the light of the world. He's standing in front of a door. There's no no, uh, knob or handle on the door. And he's knocking and the ivy, the greenery has grown up over the door. So you know it's been a long, long time since that door has been opened. And he's standing knocking. I saw it the first time in 1955. It was, uh, I'm not usually impressed a great deal by art. That one moved me. In 1974, Elsie and I had a chance to go to London. I've been there twice. Went to see this one both times. And if I go back, I'd like to see it again. But I was interested that when I went back in 1974, he's still knocking. And the door hadn't been opened. 19 years. How long will he knock? Kings don't do that kind of thing. Anybody knows that kings, the one thing they ne- one thing they never do is knock on a door. Knocking is a sign that you can be rejected. Knocking is a sign of need and of plea. 
There's an interesting story from the Middle Ages about one of the emperors who had a fight with the Pope over who was top dog. And so the Pope excommunicated him. Uh, he was a, he was the emperor. He thought he could win it, but he didn't. So the day came when the emperor walked, walked over the, the Alps and stood in the snow barefooted outside of the papal residence knocking for admission. It's a sign of vulnerability, not a sign of power. They said, that's not the way for the Christ to come. But that's the way he came. That's the way he still comes. That's the only way he will come that is saving, knocking. Now, the second figure in the Gospel of John is the donkey on Palm Sunday. You will remember... This was the climax of his ministry, and it had had a tremendous impetus in those last days with the resurrection of Lazarus. You remember where Lazarus lived. He lived not too many minutes out of Jerusalem, so that all Jerusalem knew about the resurrection of Lazarus. They'd either had the privilege of seeing Lazarus himself after his resurrection or talking to somebody who'd seen Lazarus or at least talking to somebody who'd talked to somebody who'd seen Lazarus. So the whole city knew about it. And so Palm Sunday came and they said, will he establish his kingdom today? And they went out to greet him, like we do with an inaugural procession. And they stripped their clothes and the palm branches and laid them. He comes over the hill and he sees them as they're chanting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Their king has come. And he looks around for an appropriate way to come in and he finds a donkey in its fold and he climbs on it and he comes in. Now I'm aware that he did that to fulfill Zechariah 9.9 because Zechariah 9.9 says, Behold, your king comes to you humbly, meekly, riding upon a donkey and its fold. But did you ever notice what verse 10 says? I didn't until about two years ago. Verse 10 says, He will take away the horse and the chariot from his city. Does that mean that he deliberately chose a donkey instead of a horse? You see, the horse was the symbol of military power. Now, I know that G. Campbell Morgan talks about royal donkeys and said there was a breed of royal donkeys for kings to ride. But I suspect that's not true. I noticed that David didn't have horses, he had donkeys. But when Solomon came to the throne, he wanted to be a real king. So he married the Pharaoh's daughter, and when he brought her back to Israel, he brought men who knew how to handle horses, because David didn't know how to handle horses. And when he captured them, he hobbled them so they couldn't be used again for military purposes. And so Solomon, if my information is correct, had, what was it, 1,400 uh, uh, chariots and uh, some 12,000 horses. See, the horse was the F-16 jet, or the finest tank, or the best military weapon of its day. And he chooses a donkey. What's he saying? My kingdom's not like the kingdom of the world. How often do you think a Roman general rode a donkey? Roman generals didn't ride donkeys through the streets of Jerusalem. 
I suppose that's especially interesting to me because we live 15 miles from Keeneland where they sell horses. And two years ago, they sold one for $8.4 million. And the year before, they sold one for 10.2. And this year, they sold one for $12.5 million. One year old, each one, never run a step in a race. Be interested to know what the going rate on donkeys is, wouldn't it? It's been a long time since you saw anybody ride a donkey in the Rose Bowl parade where he wanted to look impressive. Jesus takes a donkey. His ways are not our ways. His kingdom's not like our kingdom. Lowly, humbly. And the city missed it. Israel missed it. So you will remember that on Thursday, he said, I'll see if my disciples can understand. So he took a basin and got down on his knees and started to wash their feet. And Peter said, Lord, will you never learn? Will you never learn? It's not right. You are the Christ. We're the ones who ought to be at your feet. You at our feet. Gods don't kneel at people's feet. See, it's hard for us to believe how far God will go to save us. It's hard for us to believe how far God will go to save us. The Jews couldn't believe it. And the disciples couldn't either. And Peter said, the only proper place for a God is with his worshipers at his feet, not with him, at, at his worshipers' feet. You will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part in it. Can you imagine the trauma inside Peter? I can imagine him pulling what hair he had and saying, I don't understand you, Master. You do it all wrong. But I love you. And if that's the only way I can have a part in you, not my feet, but my hands, my head, all of it. Jesus said that isn't necessary. He doesn't do it the way we think he ought to do it. And of course, the fourth figure is the cross. As Dorothy Sayers says, history is replete with men dying for their gods. Now, the first time I thought of that, the first time I read that in Dorothy Sayers, I thought, yes, in human history, particularly in ancient history, there were a lot of people who died in human sacrifice for gods. But it isn't ancient history anymore. How many Muslim young people have died killing Christians for Allah? I'd forgotten how many kamikaze pilots and cases there were in Japan of those who actually died for Hirohito. And there were hundreds of thousands more that were ready to do it if, if Americans landed on Japanese shore. You see, that's the way the world does it. They die for their deity. And here's a deity who dies for his not for his worshippers. He dies for the ones that ought to worship him. He dies for his enemies. That makes me think that the Christian witness in our day would be if there were Christians, the way Muslims die for Allah killing Christians, Muslims killing Christians for Allah and dying, it'd be Christian if Christians would die for Muslims 
so they could be saved, wouldn't it? That'd be the Christian way, wouldn't it? If Christians would sacrifice their lives so Muslims can live for the sake of Jesus, in contrast to the way Muslims sacrifice their lives so Christians can die for all. It's just two totally different ways of thinking. And so they said, can't be. It's wrong. He's done it all wrong. The disciples. And the church said, that's the proof that it's not, he's not the one. Now, you know, the interesting thing is that, uh, they were half right. Now, it took me a while to see that. Because then I linked the book of Revelation with the Gospel of John. And what is significant to me now is that all of these figures in the Gospel of John are reversed in the book of Revelation. Now, we don't have time to chase them down, but let me cite them for you. In the first chapter, it says that when he comes, you know, in the book of Revelation, he'll be like lightning flashing from the east to the west, and every eye will see him. Every eye will behold him, those who have pierced him, simultaneously, instantaneously, and it won't be a door that can keep him out. When he comes the second time, he won't come knocking. He'll come in real power and glory. Now, when he comes the second time, he won't ride a donkey. You look at chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, and you'll find that in chapter 19 it says that he comes riding a great white horse, and he has a stack of crowns on his head. So if you don't get the point with one, he stacks them up for you. That he's king of kings and lord of lords. And he has a two-edged sword, a flaming sword, two-edged coming out of his mouth. Power and glory. And he has written across his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. He doesn't come on a donkey the next time. He comes on a horse. And he doesn't come kneeling at our feet the next time. You'll remember that the chief men, the mighty men, the captains in chapter 6 at the end, they plead for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of him that sits on the throne. We'll be at his feet in that day, not he at ours. You'll remember that even heaven is at his feet. Because chapter 5 says, the 24 elders and the four living creatures all fall down before him and cast their crowns at his feet. It'll all be reversed, you see. And he won't come on a on a cross. He'll come on a throne, great white throne. We disposed of him the first time, and he'll dispose of us the second time. He'll come in power and glory. But now then, this is what struck me. It's interesting to me, significant to me, and we dare not miss it, that when he comes the second time in power and glory, there will be nothing saving about him. There's no indication in the scripture a single sin will be forgiven by his appearing. There's no indication a single lust will be removed by his appearing. There's no indication that a single broken relationship will be restored by his appearing in power and glory. 
In fact, the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation indicates that instead of it being saving, it will fix us in our sin. He that is unrighteous, verse 11 of 22 says, he that is unrighteous, let him be unrighteous still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Because on the outside are those that are not compatible with the kingdom. And on the inside are those that are. And the great division is taking place, fixed by his appearing. Now that brought this to me. That's where the passage in John 20, 12 comes in. He walked into the temple and walked past those stones that said any Gentile who goes beyond this point will be executed. And in chapter 12, Andrew and Philip come to him and say there's some Gentiles out here and they want to see you. And Jesus says, now is my soul trouble. What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. That's why I came. Then he begins to talk about the cross and he says that cross is the way the world is going to be redeemed, those Gentiles out there. Because John 3.16 is applicable here. Its shadow falls here. The God who's put together this scheme of redemption is interested in the last person who lives and breathes and wants to redeem him. So he says, except a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if that kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it'll bear much fruit. 